Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Welcome back to Breaking News. Joining me as always are Jack Forehand and Ben Hunt. Say hello, gentlemen. Good to be back. Hello, gentlemen. We're covering the healthcare premium changes today, how it informed the big CPI print on 11-14, which is a day before we're doing this recording. We're going to cover that in the zeitgeist. Jack's got some wonderfully big and dumb questions, possibly about Jared Kushner. <laughs> Nikki Haley and Vivek, they're back in our tweets of the week. We've got a mailbag that is just brimming with all sorts of stuff. Keep your messages coming in. We love getting these comments and getting them into the show. I've got a personal archive idea in my cultish corner right before we rack, wrap things up in the summary. But first, we have to talk about the 12-month-long American Super Bowl that is election <laughs> 2024. Apparently, the, the coverage has started. So, Ben, I, I got to ask, this first because we've already kind of covered this in some earlier episodes mm-hmm. does the story of the primaries even friggin matter right now because it doesn't feel like they do i'm with you matt it doesn't feel like they matter one little bit and, and yeah as as you put it it's you know the, our 12-month super bowl you know i feel like people are already focused on the super bowl the final matchup and that the playoffs you know, it's these memes, right? I forget who was it. Was it the um, who was the coach? Playoffs, right? I mean, I think the regular season is over. I think essentially everyone's not even thinking about the playoffs here. If we're thinking about that as the primary system, it is. Um, I think it's over. We were talking about that some weeks ago, but I, I it, it feels over to me as well, Matt. Is there any? hope at all for the other i mean one of the things we talked about when we talked about this before is somebody had to distance themselves from the other candidates besides trump to be able to challenge him and it looks like right now we have had a bunch of people drop out but the ones that are left are kind of right in the same they're all kind of equal with each other there, there doesn't seem to be anyone like distancing themselves i mean is there anything that could happen between now and when the primaries start that somebody could at least you know make this a one-on-one battle and give give him a run i don't think so so to recap what we've discussed before there has been structural changes on the Republican side to match structural changes that happened on the Democrat side some years ago, meaning that we've moved from, I'll call it proportional representation in the primary system. You get 10% of the vote, you get 10% of the delegates to a winner take all or winner take most system in almost all the states. Um, You know, that was pushed forward, smartly so, by the, the Trump campaign because as almost certainly the, the plurality winner in these primaries, he doesn't 
want to happen to him what he was able to do to the others in 2016, meaning he doesn't want to just rack up votes in every primary, rack up delegates in every primary. He wants to get them all, right, to, uh, to get a plurality of votes. So what if we don't get more than 50%? Let's get a plurality, and that plurality gives us most or all of the delegates for that competition. So as we discussed earlier, there's been these structural changes. I would say even more than that is that despite a couple of the truly um, low Q rating, uh, meaning low popularity rating of some of the, the candidates and them dropping out, you know, you've still got five or six people there who are in the race and show no signs of dropping out. I mean, why should they until we have an actual vote? Unfortunately, Jack, to your point, by the time we actually start having votes, it's going to be too late. So I, I, I really see this being wrapped up by Super Tuesday, that's early March, um, with, 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 with Trump taking it. Now, those structural changes, those are different from what I think Matt was putting his finger on earlier, and what I feel as well, which is that the story seems to be it's over. What, what I think is happening, Matt, to, to your point earlier, the way it feels, is that we have developed a very strong common knowledge. Again, common knowledge means what everyone knows that everyone knows. And I think the common knowledge today is that Trump's the candidate and Biden's the candidate. And once that becomes the common knowledge, then there's no more excitement here. It's not a, it's not really a horse race. It's not a competition. So without the excitement, I think that's why it feels over, Matt. So to that point though, because I think like what we can't forget is we might not have the horse race, but we, we still have these two horses like out in the front <laughs> of the pack and we've already decided what it is. Um, Place the emphasis on that word wherever you like. The the media can't just like step back and like ignore the primaries. It seems like because common knowledge may be that we know this, but now we almost it's like the machine has started to already turn how we're going to talk about this horse race because they have an incentive to keep this interesting for 12 months. They can't just be like, see you guys after Super Tuesday and then we'll be back again for the grand finale in November next year. But I'm not so sure they can't just ignore it. Uh, Interesting, man. What what I, what I mean by that is think think now. I, I mean, uh, is there going to be another uh, Republican primary debate? I assume there is, but I'm actually not sure because there's no buzz about it. There's no hype around it. There's no talking around it at all. Instead, everything's going to be twenty four seven Israel, twenty four seven whatever comes up. So that's the thing with common knowledge, right? When everyone knows that everyone knows something, it's, it, it becomes submerged because there is, there's, it's boring. It's boring to talk about. Now, there's a flip side to this, which is the candidates. They, there's a, you know, it's like, over here, over here, remember us? I mean, we really, there is still, you know, votes to be counted, as they say. There's always votes to be counted. You know, these 
We haven't even started the primaries. And so then the candidates have to create that sort of attention and that sort of buzz. And Jack, I know we were going to talk about this later. We can talk about it now. I, I mean, Vivek, Nikki, they've been saying some, I mean, clinically insane, whack, wacky doesn't do it justice. Some of the things they've been saying recently. I, I honestly think this is what happens. It's, 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 you have to come up with something to refocus the attention here or else, I don't know, man, I, th I think this just gets submerged. And it's like, it's like, you know, is there a lot of buzz around this season's Bachelor? I guess it's the Golden Bachelor. I don't think there is, right? Because it's like, okay. Whole separate conversation. <laughs> I may have just gotten sucked into The Bachelor for well, the first time ever, no, but it's that's good. a whole other conversation. It's compelling, and that, it's a good conversation to have. But when but death is on the line, the stakes of love have not been higher. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's good. That's right. You got to you got to find that sort of dramatic tension somewhere, and when when everyone believes that everyone else believes that it's a foregone conclusion. Well, what's the drama in that? So you think instead of like trying to create the drama, the CNNs and the stations of the world will effectively just maybe spend more time on other issues. You know, spend time on Israel and spend less time on this rather than trying to come up with some story that doesn't exist to try to make people interested in this. Well, I, th I think the candidates will keep trying to create stories and their PR people will, you know, that's, this is how it works. You, you try to create a story that drives a news cycle, whether that day's news cycle, that week's news cycle, you name it. And if some event happens in the world, like Israel fighting a war, well, you're going to try to insert yourself into that conversation as best you can. So it's, it's not that the media is trying to create the stories is that they see all the stories that are happening. They are pitched stories. Stories exist in the world and they're getting instant feedback on, well, what gets engagement? I mean, it's no different from how the Twitter algorithm works or the, you know, the Facebook algorithms work. It's just, we don't think about them as algorithms. But they are. This is this is how our attention economy works, and everybody's in on the act. And there's nothing bad about it. It just is. So you know, it's, it's not that I think media has to you know, media. I don't think that mainstream media has to go searching very hard to find stories that resonate. It's that there's this. It's like. Lucy and the Chocolate Factory, you know, there, there are things, you know, the chocolates are coming by and you're just looking for the ones to pick up that you know are, you know, you can reach and you can easily resell. Anyway, that was a bad analogy, but that, that's how it is. It's not that they're sitting there thinking about, oh, what stories can we create? The stories are just coming along on the conveyor belt and they're getting real-time response of, oh, that, that clicked, oh, that didn't. 
Yeah, so it seems like we're going to have... clicks with the primaries. So we're going to have politicians basically escalating the, you know, do you think that was crazy? We'll hold my beer. I've got, I've got the next level of crazy. Like, we're just going to see escalating tweets here, probably, as, we, as we'll talk about in a little bit, but as we head into the primaries here. We are in the hold my beer stage of a, any sort of competition where people have already decided you've already lost. It's the Hail Mary stage. It's the pull your goalie in the, in the hockey game stage. Yeah, this is where it's, it's, go, go for it on fourth down stage, right? It's, it's, you know, we're still in the basically the first quarter of the primary season, but we're already at a point where you got to throw the bomb and you got to go for it on fourth down. It's basically let's fire half the federal workers based on Social Security number stage. Effectively, right? Like, like I say, it's 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 insane stuff that anyone with a brain knows is insane, but you say it anyway because it will get attention. It's attention for attention's sake. So if we're if we're chasing attention for attention, because I think if you're watching this, it's because you're thinking forward all the time because you're either in or around markets or some form, or that's where you're wired. Yep. So all of us being forward looking people, we think about then what starts to happen next and what's the strategy behind, like if it's Trump and Biden, their camps are now going, we have to get certain voter strategies in certain places to either capture that swing voter or whatever else. How does that shape their messaging or where they, where they, the candidates want to steer the to stories towards in the months ahead? What, what should we be watching for there? Oh, that's really easy. So, so Trump's strategy is is just to say nothing or rather the things to say to say to say his version of wacky things you know talk about you know windmill you know offshore windmills killing the whales you know talk about the people who are out to get him right because there, there's nothing really at stake about that is what we expect from trump it's his brand it's totally his brand i, I mean and so he just he just does that he doesn't have to talk about inflation, his policies. He doesn't have to come up with any sort of policies or arguments. He doesn't have to debate anyone. He just has to wait it out because you go through, you know, it's go through the, the, the primary cycle. And then he just has to wait for the Democratic Party to self-destruct, which is totally in the process of doing, like Democrats often do. Right, that's the old description of the Democratic Party. It's a circular, uh, you know, firing squad. That's Democrats are doing what Democrats always do. They are doing the circular firing squad, and so Trump's just going to let that happen. And Biden, on the other hand, has got he's got he's in the middle of a circular firing squad, right? There, there's. 2016, September 2016, I wrote a note called Virtue Signaling or Why Clinton is in Trouble. And that was the note I wrote saying, actually, I think Trump wins. And the reason I think thought then and the, the reason I think now, right, that, that, that Trump wins is that nobody is willing to sell out. And I mean that in the sporting sense the sports team sets where you give it your all. You are all in for your quarterback, 
your point guard, you know, for your team. When when we talk about selling out in a sports sense, it means you lay it on on the field. It's all there. I don't see anybody selling out for, for Biden. Do you? Do you guys see anybody selling out for Biden? No. And it's only become increasingly concerning over the last couple of weeks with the Israel 100%. situation. Exactly right, Matt. Exactly so right. tie this back because I think this is, you look at the election math and you go, 44 of the states have pretty much already decided which way they're going. Yep. The, the, if, if we know this, if Nate Silver and his friends know this, everybody else knows it. it's another piece of common knowledge. So we got a handful of my neighbors outside of Philadelphia and maybe some Detroiters and some other people who have a disproportionate outcome on which way this swings with the advantage leaning Republican. Like where do the strategies shape up from each side on getting that last that last mile. So both teams are going to try to make the other team the evil un-American if you elect them as the end of democracy team. Sadly, I don't think they're particular. They may not be wrong. <laughs> that assessment. They may not be wrong. That's going to be well, the, the, the only shot or the, the shot that both teams have is that, all right, I'm a deeply flawed candidate. The other guy is the end of the republic. That's it. Right? And, and I, I think that works better on Republicans than it does on Democrats, because I think Democrats skew younger and, I don't know, I, I get, I get, depressed if not despondent about the whole thing. I mean, as you're right, 44 states are pretty much decided. We got six battleground states. Actually, I think that now we're probably got seven or eight that are battleground as in they were solid blue and now they're battleground purple. Um, and in total, those call it seven or eight states are going to be decided by somewhere between 50 and 100,000 votes. That's it. Georgia's a good example. So uh, we know exactly how many votes uh, Trump lost Georgia by because that's the number of votes he was trying to manufacture after the election. Whatever it was, 11,500, whatever that number is. We know exactly how many votes. It ain't a lot of votes. In Georgia, the 2020 election, the under 30 vote, under 30 years of age, that, that demographic went to Biden by 13 percentage points. 13 percentage points. Today, they're flat. They're even. That, that difference, that differential, 13 percent differential, so, you know, um, 57 to 43, let's call it, percent. Now that that's 50-50, that 7% swing in that, in that voting race, that's a hell of a lot more than 11,000 votes. So whether it's Georgia or Arizona or Nevada or... Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin. I, I don't 
I don't see it because nobody's going to sell out for Biden. And it's not like there's somebody waiting in the wings where they say, oh, turn it over to Kamala, right? Or turn it over to who? You know, Newsom? Okay. It's just, it's just too late, I think. I think. Who knows what happens? I, and I mean that seriously. Who, who knows? But I, I get it's the, it's the old Democratic circular firing squad. And Joe Biden's right in the middle of it. it it's fascinating as we watch. And I, I was looking earlier at the uh, the ad impact uh, projected political advertising spending for this for the 2024 campaign cycle. And it's literally like Wisconsin's the bottom of that at expected 362 million of ad spending. 725 million in Pennsylvania, 821 million expected in Arizona. And as these stories get pushed out onto those voters, that's like the whole country is going to feel the weight of this focus now, right? Well, not the whole country. Explain. So that. if you're in those 44 or 42 non-battleground states, you're not going to feel it at all because nobody's going to be spending with you. If you're in one of those battleground states, it's it's all you're going to see, all you're going to experience. And, and what's actually telling to me is when you're not in one of those battleground states and you do see some of those ads. For example, I was in I was in L.A. in uh, 2016 and visiting somewhere, and there were ads for Hillary Clinton, and I was thinking. Why are there ads for Clinton in L.A., the L.A. market? Because if she has to fight over California, I mean, you know, there's no election. Right. If that's close, why are you spending money here and not somewhere else? And the reason, I think, was twofold. One was, and it's twofold, really. One, those ads were for donors, right, not for voters, they were for donors. And two, they were for donors because they didn't think they had to worry about the voters. <laughs> right. And, Raise the money. Uh, so, yeah, if, you, if you're in one of those 42 states that's not a battleground state and you start seeing ads, I think that's actually problematic for your team if you're seeing ads for your team in those spaces. Well, let's let's jump to a different a different type of team, team inflation. We're back in the news. I think about the, your word for this, Ben, all the time. The this is like the cartoonification of the world here. Yep. We had a CPI change that probably affected the way we draw the inflation cartoon on November fourteenth or whenever that report came out this week. Can you explain what happened and what the impact was on the CPI report? Sure. We're the, the, the CPI report. So we have these monthly macro data reports, the jobs number, the first Friday of every month. Uh, CPI comes out second Wednesday or whatever it is, right? Third Wednesday of every, of every month. Um, these are as I like to call them cartoons, because they're constructed in a very specific way, and the construction makes a difference, to talk about. But then it's like, um, it's like earnings season for the economy, okay? except we get it on a monthly basis, and then everyone falls over themselves afterwards to 
tell you how to think about the number that was just reported. Oh, that number was hot. Or, oh, that number was nice and cool you know, for, for, for inflation readings. And today, or yesterday, we're recording this on the 14th, uh, the number came out and it was cool, cooler than expected by, I think, one-tenth of one percent. Which is what happens with this stuff, right? So the, the, these are the, the horse races, Matt. You know, if, if there's nothing to pay attention to on the election, no horse race there, well, let's make a horse race out of is the number going to come in a little hot or a little cold? And it makes an enormous difference. Right, so the, the S&P 500 was up, I think, 2% yesterday. When that number came out, it was nice. Uh, the Russell 2000 was up 4.5%. Whoa! Uh, it absolutely makes a difference. Because everybody says, okay, that means that the Fed can't hike and they're going to start cutting interest rates. Party on and cut them before we thought they would have to cut them. As evidenced by consumer stocks, which also shot up because consumers still have jobs and wage increases keep going up and poof, target to the moon, right? It was something like, it was something like one of the best days for the Russell 2000 relative to the S&P, like one of the 10 best in history or something like that. It, it was amazing, like how well, much the outperformance of small caps was. Because... Let's be clear, the Russell 2000 has had a lot of bad days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Versus the S&P 500 and the Magnificent 7 and all like that over the last couple of years. And for longer than that. But, um, yeah, it was a good day. So these things make a difference. We celebrate. We panic on these sort of constructed cartoons. And I use that word cartoon in the technical sense of the word. It's a, it's a representation of a representation. It's a drawing of a, of a, of a drawing. And um, what we find always is that the construction of the cartoon is designed to, and I get it, right? I, I mean, you want to create a cartoon that's going to make stocks go up by 2% in a day, that's going to get uh, people saying, oh, the price of money is going down, happy days are here again, the war against inflation is over, all, all like that. And that's a lot of what we saw yesterday and what we've seen in these reports over and over again. So specifically yesterday, what you saw was that uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has changed the way they calculate uh, inflation in regards to health care premiums or health insurance premiums. And what I'll, roughly speaking, they are applying, these aren't the exact words, but here's the idea is you're applying a hedonic or happiness adjustment to your insurance premiums. All that means is we all know that actually our healthcare premiums are going up by a lot, and they keep going up. What the Bureau of Labor Statistics is telling you, and this is this is not my experience. I would love to hear if it's either of your experiences or audience experiences. 
what the um, what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying is that well, actually, actually, you're getting so much more for the premium that you're paying. So much more health care. So it's why from, you know, the official statistics, the price of a new car uh, hasn't increased very much at all over the last 20 years. Because buying a new car, you're getting so much more for the same amount of money. It's just you can't buy the same amount of money. It, it's costing you a lot more, but the adjustment is, oh, but you're getting so much more for your money that actually you're not paying more, which is ridiculous because you can't buy. It's impossible to buy a new car that has manual windows and manual transmission and, you know, not you, you can't buy it. It's not available. I'm sure it would cost a lot less today, but they're not made. You cannot buy them. And it's the same with healthcare insurance. It's the same with airline tickets. Uh, there's so many aspects of our economy where we're now measuring, intentionally so, either something that, you know, is compared to something that is not available, or actually we're using the stupidly cheaply, cheaply priced thing as our common denominator, like we do in airline tickets. So, you know, air travel inflation is measured against the most basic economy ticket, which, as you know, you buy that ticket, you can't even, you can't select your seat. You can't even bring a carry-on bag on. You've got to pay extra for all those things. Our whole economy is that way. We all know that the actual cost of living today is much higher because there are all these other things, these, these things we have to pay and the fees and the administrative fees and all the stuff that's added on. None of that counts in the cartoon that we have constructed. Instead, we get things like the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that compared to this time last year, your health care, your insurance premiums, are 34% cheaper today. I mean, it's a, you know, give me a break, people. Just give me a break. I can, I can attest to two kids that my premiums are certainly not 34% less. Um, they might be 34% more, but they're definitely not 34% less. Well, uh, and, and the, the reason they're showing up as 34% less is they've changed their methodology, like I say, to say that, oh, you're getting so much more for the money, the increased amount of money you're paying. Does that does it feel that way to you, Jack? Like you're getting a lot more insurance for your dollar these days? No, yeah, definitely, definitely not. So is this? So is this there? Are they trying? Is the BLS themselves trying to construct this story that inflation's over? I mean, is is that what's going on here? Are they are they attempting to calculate this properly, but they're not doing it the right way? I mean, how is this playing out? No one wants. No one in a position of power wants the measurement of inflation to be high. It's not that it's some grand conspiracy. I, I get it. I get the whole idea of hedonic adjustments. I really do. Uh, but that becomes the measurement. And in a system like our financial system where all of Wall Street, every, everyone in the business of finance wants the price of money to go down, we are going to cheer anything which suggests that the Fed 
can, in fact, reduce the price of money. Everyone wants our measurement of inflation to go down because, frankly, everyone wants real inflation to go down. But if you can't control the reality, you control the story. You influence the story. You nudge the story. It's not to pick on someone or to say this is a conspiracy. This is freaking human nature. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's a human greed thing. And here we are. That's the zeitgeist. So speaking of human nature, Jack, you had a little bit of an epiphany about did, your yeah. dear friend, Jared Kushner. Can you explain what happened? And I don't think this is a dumb question at all. I think this is actually a really important self-reflective act to note when this stuff happens. Share this story with us. Well, I think, you know, we talk about the influence of the news on us. And I think I am one of the people that gets influenced a lot. And so I just remember back to Trump's presidency. And I remember the stories that were told about Jared Kushner. It was like, he's not competent. He's not qualified. He's, you know, he's there because he's Trump's son-in-law. He has no business being in the Middle East. I mean, people would make all these jokes about Jared Kushner being the one to finally achieve Middle East peace or something like that. And so, and he never, he very rarely spoke publicly at that point. So I, you know, I, I basically was just taking that as my opinion and then I listened, I don't know if either one of you listened to it, but there was a, a Lex Friedman podcast recently where Jared was on there. And like, I basically went completely in the other direction. He came as like a thoughtful person, somebody who studied the history of the Middle East. I mean, there were certainly opinions he had, particularly maybe related to Trump that I didn't agree with, but like, it was a completely night and day thing. And like, to some extent, I feel like I get influenced both ways. Like initially the media was sort of setting the narrative I was, you know, agreeing with. And now Jared is setting it himself and maybe I'm going back the other way. So I don't know. It's just something I'm struggling with a lot, like my, how much my opinion of people is affected by what I'm told. And I was wondering, Ben, if you kind of have thoughts on that as it relates to Jared. Well, not just Jared, but I'll say in general that um, when a story presents a successful person and Kushner's success, you know, anyone... A lottery winner is not successful, right? That is, that's pure luck, right? And there are lottery elements, trust me, I understand, lottery elements to people who are born into wealth. I get all of that. Trust me, I do. I, I would suggest, however, that media stories that portray someone as stupid are very likely not to be, well, let's just say that they are motivated. They are motivated stories. And it doesn't mean that, that it doesn't mean that that's a good person, but it means that if somebody is portrayed as, oh, they're just an idiot, that's often, or that's rarely the case. I'm not saying it's never the case, and I'm not saying that it's that these are Einsteins, right? Anyone in the public eye is is brilliant and smart or good or effective. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm going to suggest to you that they're probably not dumb. They're probably not dumb. 
And I'd also want to suggest to you that regardless of what you think about someone's politics, that if someone puts themselves in the public eye, there is a partial motivation to work for the public good. Now, what they th their conception of the public good may be so far and opposed to your conception of the public good. Again, stipulated. Also, I think it's partial. I think a lot of people who enter the public sphere do it for money, for power, for their own personal aggrandizement. I think actually that dominates the calculation for so many people in the public eye. But if you're in the public eye and it's an issue where you have been charged with some responsibility and you've demonstrated in the past that you have achieved some things in your life, even if a lot of it's kind of by luck of birth or the like, my suggestion is you're probably not stupid and there is a partial motivation here to do public service or good. Those may be small pieces of your total picture, but they are not absent. And I, I, I suspect, right, that that informed your aha moment when you listen to that podcast. Like, he's not stupid. He's not. He's not just out just to make money for himself. Although I think there's a lot of that going on. And again, it's that we, 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 we are presented people that as, as if they were cartoons, as if they were these two-dimensional representations of representations. And that's rarely the case for an actual human being. That's very rarely the case. Yeah, I'm, curi I'm curious. Did either one of you listen to that or no? I'd rather carve out my eye with a rusty spoon. <laughs> I was watching The Bachelor. <laughs> Maybe I should have talked about The Golden Bachelor then. That might, that might have been a better way to go. No spoilers. I'm way behind. <laughs> but, but Jack, I, let's talk about that. So the, the reason I didn't watch it is I've got no interest in either the rehabilitation of Jared Kushner nor the cartoonification of Jared Kushner. I've got zero interest in it. Zero. Yeah, you have no interest in either side, basically. I, I've not, no, because both sides to me are just so... I don't give a damn, right? I, I, I don't, I don't, what I cared about with Jared Kushner was what I thought were bad policies around PPE, personal protective equipment, um, in the COVID response. Because he was focused on that. That was part of, that was his portfolio, right? And, and I thought, I thought that was very poorly done. It didn't mean that I thought he's an idiot or that I thought, oh, he's just, you know, just a grifter who's just there to make it. There are aspects of that, but none of these people are cartoons. They're actual real people and they're not idiots, 
but I have no interest in either the cartoonification of them, either as saints or as demons. And I've got zero interest in the, you know, reconstruction efforts, the PR efforts after the fact either. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, what was more interesting to me was not even him personally, but, you know, I have this, I'm kind of a centrist guy who was not a huge fan of Trump. And I, I sort of take that and I carry that to, well, all the policies they implemented were all pretty much, you know, not good. And then you listen to him talk about their policy in the Middle East specifically, not some of the other stuff you mentioned. And, and I have to take a step back and say, did I miss that? You know, did, did they actually accomplish some positive things there because of my personal opinion? Did I miss some positive, you know, things they did as I try to better understand what's going on in the Middle East now? 100%. 100%. And I, you know, I think the Abraham Accords where they were, um, they were small, small steps. And I mean that in a non-pejorative way, right? Because they were small and so they were achievable, right? It's like, okay, we're not going to solve, you know, Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad. We're not going to solve the West Bank It, there's so much water under the breeze that it's just those are unsolvable problems. But why shouldn't, you know, the Gulf states and Saudi normalize relations with Israel? Right? That, that actually, that seems maybe achievable. And it doesn't hurt that it goes along with Kushner's and Trump's other interest their own personal aggrandizement, that doesn't hurt. And it's all of a piece. So I, I there, there, those were meaningful steps, I thought, that were taken. Meaningful steps that have been largely, at least delayed, intentionally so, by Iran and its um, actions through Hamas and Islamic Jihad and all the rest. Uh, in Israel, uh, but I, 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 it was it was an incontrovertible good thing. What the, the the Abraham Accords were trying to do, and what they actually did. So speaking of good things, it's terrible segues from <laughs> <laughs> Jack. Please, <laughs> this tweet of the week. I mean, these are just layers of political decadence I, I, this is the, the gift that some of these primaries keep on giving i just share this tweet of the week with us let's get this up on the screen if we can and tell me what's going on here yeah this gets back to what we were talking about before which is everybody trying to one-up each other in this republican primary in terms of the dumb things they could say and you know nikki haley had had something she said recently where she was talking about how every person on social media should be verified by their name because of national security, um, in quotes. And, you know, we talked about this. This was, uh, you know, her and Vivek have kind of been going back and forth on this. And, you know, Ben, you had this tweet. At this point, I'm convinced that Nikki and Vivek have some sort of weird side bet going where they're trying to say the stupidest shit imaginable. Yeah. Um, so it does seem that. But I wonder, like, in, in narrative world, like, are they, where is this coming from? I mean, are they benefiting from this? I mean, obviously, they're getting attention. But is there some political consultant behind the scenes who's saying, you know, Nikki, if you, if you talk about Twitter here, like this is going to help your campaign or is wh where is this stuff coming from? No, and, and it, 
It's not as crazy as it sounds, right? I, I mean, all of these proposals, these balloons that are put out there, they're put out there, it's what we call a Mott and Bailey. Um, it's, a, it's a style of arguing or presenting a, a point where you have your castle, right, which is your defensible position. And the defensible position for Nikki Haley is that, hey, we've got a lot of bots out there. Uh, many of them are uh, not directed by, you know, influenced by, you know, strategic adversaries of the United States. Russian bots, that is actually a thing. Chinese bots, totally a thing. Yeah. All, all this, all the, the bots. So, all right, so there's the national security. And there's a, there's a reasonable position. That's your castle. That, uh, you know what, we should have better identification of that. Then there's the, the area outside your castle where you sally forth to do battle. And that's where you say stupid stuff like, oh, they're, you know, anonymous accounts on social media should be illegal. It's, it's, it's. And, and what you're trying to do when you do this, this stuff, this type of organization happens all the time. You go out there and you say the stupid thing and then say, so somebody says, that's really stupid. And then, you know, you retreat and say, no, and I was, I was talking about the defensible thing. Because people on your team, they love to see you say the crazy thing. Right. Vivek was, I'm going to fire half federal employees Right, a million people, based on whether your social security number ends in an even number or an odd number. Now, the defensible position is, hey, you know, the growth in the federal bureaucracy, we need to really make some cuts and the like, and you can't probably can't do that really incrementally. You've got to to make some kind of significant cuts right off the bat. Usually, this takes the the form of a Republican candidate says, oh, we're going to get rid of the Department of Education. We're just going to get rid of a department of education. Instead, the next sallies forth into the, you know, the, the, the open field there and says, fire them all based on their social security number. And it's like, oh, that's just so stupid. And to respond, he's like, no, no, no. I'm, I was just being, you know, you need to take me seriously, not literally. But to your supporters, they're saying, yeah. That's great. So this is the style of argumentation that you see constantly today. Constantly. It's, it's basically two, a defensible message for when you criticize and a very aggressive message, an attention-getting message for your base uh, that you can also point to. You want to have your cake and eat it too. So this is, as you're describing earlier, Jack, the hold my beer phase where you're going to see more and more outrageous statements to try to create enthusiasm in the base for one of the primary system. And when people say, that is just batshit crazy, say, well, I'm, you know, take me, take me seriously, not literally. I'm talking about, a, you know, we need to reduce the growth in employment in the federal sector. Or we have an interest, you know, we want to prevent bots from, you know, influencing people and not knowing what's there. That's what's going on, Jack. And it's just, it's just, 
once you start looking for this kind of pattern, you'll just see it everywhere. And it's, it's, it's pretty depressing, but here we are. Jack, I think you really highlighted the point of, especially with the hold my beer uh, reference to this, of like, these are these candidates flailing for attention in more and more and more extreme ways to how did they direct the market back with attention to them? And the way you do that, the more people forget about you is you, you cry wolf or you cry social security number or whatever it is these guys are yapping about now. I think it's time for some mailbag. Love it. Bring I'm going to, I'm going to consolidate kind of two of these questions as best I can here on this, because, uh, the total war piece with Israel, I think really hit home with a lot of people. We had a lot of feedback on just that understanding that Israel is now fighting a total war, whereas Hamas has always been, or not always, but has recently been fighting a total war. Always. Israeli just decided to fight one back. And inside of these questions was a version of this, which was uh, Israel's government has chosen total war and its effects. Since they are smart people, they know that one possible effect of this is attack by many other Muslim peoples. So if Israel depends on the U.S. and other Western suppliers for arms and places that have not yet chosen total war, does Israel care about that calculation? And I use care in the, the loosest of terms here, but does it matter to Israel when waging total war what their suppliers or partners in the global oh. stage think? Well, I think it matters... Does it matter? It matters. I think. I th here's what I think, uh, and it goes back to. Uh, yeah, I took classes you know, a long time ago from from Henry Kissinger, and uh, you know it was a seminar. We were talking about the Middle East, and, and I'll, it's, it's, he said this in other places too. It's a really good say. He says, "You can't have." a big war in the Middle East without Egypt, and you can't have a big peace in the Middle East without Syria. His point being that Israel can wage total war against Hamas. Israel cares very much that that does not become total war against Egypt, Syria, Iran. Right? That, those would all be bad outcomes. I mean, the only, the only nation that gets more military and economic support from the United States than Israel in the region is Egypt. Right? So they're, they're, both Egypt and, the United, and Israel are essentially client states of the United States. So I think that Israel can wage this total war against Hamas without concern that they're going to have a broader war against the adversary that would really matter, and that would be Egypt. Now, Syria, with its civil war and all the stuff that's going on there, I mean, in a lot of cases, Syria doesn't really exist as that sort of coherent adversary that it did when, when Kissinger made that talk. So, I mean, for God's sake, we have you know, we've got American troops in Syria. We've got American troops in Iraq. 
and and that to me is kind of where I see the this potentially spreading. It's not that Israel is going to provoke a total war with Egypt. I think that's impossible. The other client states there, you know, the fiefdoms of Lebanon, you know, it doesn't really matter. Syria's kind of broken up. Uh, the the adversary where you could get total war and it matters is with Iran. So the concern for me is that, and you're seeing it now, is that you're getting the Iranian clients um, attacking American positions in Iraq and Syria in an effort to make this a war with the United States. Because it's hard for Iran to get at Israel except through its clients, like it's already done. That's already happening. So I, th I think, you know, Israel's version of total war has very limited ability to spread to a nation where it matters to them, Egypt. I think that Iran would love to have this war spread, and its vision of this is um, let's get our clients to do some attacking on the American positions. That's the weak link to me for how this spreads, is the American positions in Iraq and Syria. Less so that what Israel does or doesn't do in Gaza um, creates a wider war. Just just quickly, does, does Israel have any risk here that the United States would cut them off, like if they went too far here? Obviously, if they're, they're dependent on us for supplies of the war. Like, is, is that a risk at all, that they would go too far in this total war and you know, the United States would stop you know, supporting with some of the arms and things we're supporting with? It, that's more of a risk for Ukraine. Right, so, so uh, I, Ukraine is fighting an adversary that would be the equivalent of Israel fighting Egypt. Right, it's a big fight where you need the constant resupply and munitions and all the rest. The war that Israel is fighting against Hamas is, let's be clear, it's a pretty one-sided war. It's not, I mean, it's not like Hamas is going to be mounting a counteroffensive like the Russians can do. So I don't think Israel's that worried about it. I, I mean, do they need to make sure the Iron Dome continues to be resupplied with, you know, all the, the countermeasures? Sure. But that's, you know, that that's not going to happen. So to answer your question, Jack, I... I you know, sure, it's a concern. It's not a big concern because the type of total war that Israel is fighting against Hamas is very different than if they were fighting a total war with Egypt. Then you really, you know, and, and the United, again, to be clear, the United States has negative 1,000% interest in that war happening. So that ain't going to happen. And they really want to prevent it from happening with Iran, too. Which is why I think that the, the real weak links here now are the American positions. Because those troops are only there to die. And uh, that would be bad. 
It'd be, it'd be like, so, you know, which has happened before. I mean, we lost whatever it was, 400 Marines in Lebanon in 1983. That was a pretty dark day. So it's, that's, that's the weakness right now, I, I think, with the current American position and the Israeli concern is that we have another 1983 Marine barracks situation like we had in Lebanon. I think that's the risk here. So, Matt, it's time for our weekly transition from war to positivity. <laughs> um, it is, uh, yeah. It's time Talk for that, my... my Talk that. <laughs> Talk that. Lebanon my, in 1983. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, it's time for my favorite segment, Matt. Matt's Cultish Corner. What do you got this week? So, I've been writing about something recently. This could turn into a book at some point. Ben, you've written about this before, and it's this idea of creating a personal archive. And I wanted, I wanted to bring this up today because I think one of the realizations that I've had in we swim in the water, <laughs> uh, we try to take all this content in, we try to synthesize it. A lot of us are good at taking notes. Fewer of us are good at reflecting on those notes or creating that space. But something happens when you start to create that personal archive, which is not a library. You don't have to go out and write 10 books and publish them. It's just you're completing thoughts in some way that you're putting on a shelf digitally, physically, whatever, where you start to realize something. And I think that realization is how these stacked thoughts with you go, oh crap, I'm, I'm actually kind of complex. And if you start to realize that about yourself, you start to see it in others. And I think that raises your threshold for tolerance. Ben, I'm, I'm reading something from you because you put this, this was in your narrative and metaverse piece, I believe. So forgive me if I'm misquoting that. Yep. I think this was the fourth one. You said, my faith is an ark. It is a place of safekeeping for human memories and connections for what would otherwise be swept away by the flood of political and corporate nudges we have unleashed. It is a vessel to transport these human memories and connections from the present to the future. My faith is an archive. I call it the narrative omni archive of humanity or noah very clever for short and it is intended to allow every human being literally every human being to record their story as they wish it to be told to those who will come after them for free forever because no one should tell your story except you when we connect again that complexity in our own private personal archives and then however we make them public and shareable is is up to us we see the complexity in ourselves. We see our diversity of thought, thinking that we're a work in progress, our minds change and update over time. And then we find it in others too, because they're also works in progress. They're also arcs of faith and archives of faithful humanity. And when you have that, I mean, what's, what's left to hate? Amen. Amen, Matt. There's ARK, orcs, the vessel. And there's ARC arcs, the path and the progress, the story arc. Um, I think you hit it on the head there when you talked about reflection. Because it's in the reflection of the events in our, our life, the things we read, the things we experience. It's in our reflection that we piece them together that we make an arc 
an ARC, a story. We constructed the story of how do these events fit together in a way that has meaning for us. That's the story of our lives, and it requires that reflection. I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's just the most important project there is, Matt, both so that we can tell ourselves the story of who we are, also, to your point, that we can understand that everyone is a story under construction. They're not cartoons, Jack. Right? They're not stupid. They're not heroes. They're not devils. They're not saints. They're humans, just like us. And that exercise, I think you're right, Matt. It means everything. It means everything. All right, I'm ready to reflect on this episode today, guys. You ready? We got we got notes, and I'm at the end of this notepad, so perf perfect timing on where to draw this to a conclusion. All right, so here we go from episode, what, Jack, or what are you up to? Episode nine? Where are I we? I think this is nine, yeah. Holy cow, we've got nine in the bag already. All right, so here's your summary. Common knowledge of election 2024, Trump and Biden. Once it's common knowledge, it gets boring which means we've entered the hold my beer stage. See those tweets from Nikki and Vivek. I'm thinking of this, and as I was making the notes, this is like when the band of yesteryear is on tour again and they're playing the hits. This is the Rolling Stones out there playing Gimme Shelter for the 2000th time and mix shaking and gyrating, and you're like, please don't get hurt. But you've done this a few times, haven't you? With both teams demonizing others and it's it's kind of like if and ben you made this point about you kind of both candidates are going to say like i know i'm the bad guy they're going to say like i'm the demon but that's the damien that's the antichrist to borrow from the the omen in this post halloween world and i'd like to continue with this rolling stones theme if that's okay so i'd like to uh I, i've invoked give me shelter already with this i'd like to say when both teams demonize each other, that's the sympathy for the devil as they try to say they're okay. On inflation and the C CPI cartoonification, saying it's, it's cooler than cool, guys, and that's thanks to this BLS change, which was really quite a big deal. It was the WD-40 on the Rusty 2000 that sent stocks up, and it's us cleaning up these old things to basically say this old story is now something new. Not that it's a conspiracy theory, but this is kind of the equivalent of the Rolling Stones getting joint replacements. Apparently, I didn't write a song down for that one. Uh, then, Ben, you made this point that I actually really loved because I think you combined the straw man fallacy and the lottery fallacy into one thing. You said lottery winners are not success stories. And I wrote down just like lottery losers aren't failures. But we have to tease that apart. We have to see the straw men in those arguments. And Jack, to your point, it's really great to zero in on when that lottery logic is being used and then going, oh, okay, they, they won a lottery. They didn't invent their path there. And we have to stay, step back and look at that. We have to say, you know, well, I want to, you mentioned make uh, the greater good men. I think that's the make the greater good greater and gooder again is my campaign for the year. I'd like to equate that to the Rolling Stones. They're a rainbow, but in this case, certainly of that farting unicorn meme. <laughs> last but not least, or almost last but not least, Ben, you were kissing and telling 
or Kissingering and telling about class stories. I love when you do that. The uh, no big war without Egypt, no big peace without Syria. That was really interesting to me because with this shift, the risk of total war spreading and, and Israel and what they're doing, especially in the face of with Iran, it's kind of Israel singing to the world that they don't want to be our beast of burden, but they still have to do what a beast has to do. Last but not least, in our personal archive conversation there, that idea that nobody tells your story but you. I think if you see the nuance in you and you can see the nuance in others, then you can talk about it. Then you can have a conversation with anybody. That's the whole idea of breaking the news apart so we can talk about these narratives because you can't always get what you want. <laughs> but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. Breaking News Episode 9. Keep those emails, keep those comments, keep those likes and follows coming. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Thank you. Guys. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching Breaking News so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at practicalquant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter.